This season of Well and Good with Art and Matilda is brought to you by Subaru. We love Subarus, and we think they're the perfect car for Kiwis. Indeed they are, Art, because Kiwis are doers, right? And so are Subaru drivers. We're the kind of people who are always pushing to sneak that little bit more out of life. We stay out surfing for that one last wave. We sneak in a trip down to the river for a swim. And we stay at the beach eating our fush and chumps until the very last speck of light is gone. So if you want to do more, do it with Subaru. G'day, mates. We've got a really interesting podcast today with Sarah Wilson, who has flown over from Australia especially for it, hasn't she, Matt? Well, she may not have come over especially. She might have already been here and we just nabbed her down. We did. We managed to catch her for about an hour or so during her busy schedule over here because she, she's an incredible woman. I was, like, in awe of Sarah the, this whole podcast. She was incredible, wasn't she? Yeah, she's amazing. So for those of you who don't know, Sarah um, basically pioneered the whole movement against sugar. She she started I Quit Sugar, um, and she's also authored a couple of best-selling books. Um, she has a history of anxiety, and she talks a bit about that during this podcast. It's some really interesting stuff. And she gives a few tools um, during the process as well. And she's also most recently like a real kind of frontliner for the waste issues. So she's waving the sustainability flag and she's giving others the tools they need to follow her lead in her new book, Simplicious Flow, which we talk about um, in the podcast. So she sat down with us to share her wisdom on all things health, well-being, waste. And let's just say she blew us away and she will blow you away too. Welcome along, Sarah. We're very privileged to have you here on our podcast, um, and thank you for coming over from Australia, especially for this. Oh, we... <laughs> I, oh look, I dropped everything, and uh, as soon as you heard, that's <laughs> right. I must be on this podcast. No, it's it's a highlight, guys. Yeah, it's definitely a highlight. Thank you. So, so why? Much. So, tell us a little bit about um, why you're here. Why you're in New Zealand? Yeah, I've got a new book out. I quit sugar, simplicious flow. It's a zero food waste book. And yeah, there was an opportunity also to come over and speak at the event that you and I did just recently, Art, mm. like, uh, which was amazing, talking about anxiety, the link between anxiety and diet. And the book before this one, of course, was um, about anxiety. First, we make the beast beautiful. So uh, they invited me to come. This book came out, Flow came out at about the same time. So it all came together beautifully. And I will use uh, any excuse to get over to New Zealand. So I, cool. I love it here. You're here to promote your new book, Simplicious Flow. And it looks incredible. Like when I first got it, my first thought was, oh, my God, it's huge. You know, yeah. this is a this is a girthy book. It's awesome. Yeah, girthy. I yeah. like that. Um, yeah, it's the biggest. I mean, it's three hundred and forty eight recipes, and it it took two years to to put together. And it's the first zero food waste cookbook in the world, in the sense that the making of it was also zero food waste. So it took five months to shoot, just because. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners know what go on, goes on on cookbook shoots, but they're incredibly wasteful. So once I went down this rabbit hole, you know, it got to the point where people who were cooking in the kitchen next to me, I had to go and use up all their scraps as well. And then, you know, it just went on and on. So um, it, it was a bit of a minefield, you know, the, the prep person really wanted to use baking paper for one of the recipes. And I had the last of a roll that I'd had for about 10 years in my drawers. All right, you can use this, but we are using this for the entire five months of the shoot. <laughs> and in fact, I think, you know, on page five or something, 
I wrote out, I used the baking paper as a background shot for some of the text. So it got so many uses. I you know? love that. But it was that level of, of detail. So, yeah, it's it's got girth. Yeah. <laughs> and it's um, it was quite a labour of love, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So what kind of brought on um, this whole food waste thing? Food waste mm. ethos. Well, um, I grew up on a subsistence living property in the bush. There's no other way of putting it. I could mention a, a town that was nearby, but I don't think anyone can you can you just clarify, like what's a subsistence? Well, it's um, it's it was semi subsistence. Yeah. It was um, mum and dad weren't hippies or anything like that. Um, it was about not having any cash. So mm. it was like living pretty, just very, very frugally and everything was reused. I mean, the, the stories I didn't find weird until I started to tell them as I got older. But, you know, the, we had goats for milk and meat, but mum and dad couldn't afford fences. So we tethered the goats to trees, the trees that were still alive, because it was in the middle of this drought. It was like a dirt, like a just a dust bowl on a hill. And so, but when the goats died, the carcasses would be used to sort of fence in the erosion gully and things like that. Um, and so everything was repurposed, you know, reused. Wow. Dad would drive into town and he had a trailer and we would have to follow the council trucks around when they were digging up the pavement, the footpath. So we'd get all the concrete and the concrete was what was used for the floor, you know, um, back at home. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing because that it makes so much sense living that, that kind of way. But yeah. it's because we've gone so far away from that yeah. that it sounds so different. Well, we didn't have a rubbish collection service and I don't remember there being rubbish mm. apart from goat carcasses. Mm. <laughs> just the odd carcass hanging around. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we just didn't do that. Actually, you know what, Dad, I mean, this is how unhippy they were. They, we had an incinerator and so anything that was left, you know, any rubbish that did exist was incinerated which negated all their, you yeah. know, uh, environmental <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, credits along the way. But, um, yeah, so I grew up with a bit of a mentality <laughs> along those lines. And then as I got older, um, because I had that mentality, you know, I moved into town when I was 16 and I, I've had a driver's license, you know, from the moment I turned 18, but I've only owned a car for six years of my life. So I've had a bike, you know, and it just kind of was always easier to own a bike. So I've lived this way. And when I Quit Sugar started, I was, you know, obviously fulfilling a particular brief, which was to help people um, get off sugar, and but the the books and the um, the I Quit Sugar program, they were all really pretty much zero waste. They were very low waste, and you know using up. I'd always the recipes would always include the broccoli stalk, or they would always um, include the bones from last night's dinner reboiled, and all of that kind of thing. So there was that was always through the book, but when you start out with a cookbook, you can't go and you know it's pretty hard to make scraps sexy. You know, well, that's so true. That's the thing I was I was trying to figure out because not only have you you know you've made all these recipes and and shot them all and you know it took five months just just to make them and shoot them, but just developing them as well. Like I saw there was a recipe for a, a banana cake with using banana skin, using the banana yeah. skin. Like, yeah, how, how, how do you make this happen? That's a little bit next level. Um, however, the cake's great. So um, no, it was because one of my friends. 
actually one of my friend's partners said to me, I bet you can't make a, oh. I bet you can't use up banana skins. I bet you have to ch- throw out banana skins. And you know when you and put yourself like, out there I'll show you. as somebody who, <laughs> I don't know, in your case, uh, runs a marathon or whatever, they kind of want to go, ah. Oh. Well, you know, what about this then, mm. you know? And so um, I was like, right, yes, exactly, I'll show you. I was like, God, I'm going to have to go and do some serious Googling here. So I went and looked into sort of different things that you could do with banana and banana skins. Um, anyway, I developed it and then I got called by um, sort of a television show and it's a, it was called Back in Time for Dinner. It was a documentary about how Australians ate throughout the different eras and they got me to come on the show for the future you know so they did it I think from the 1940s onwards and um they wanted me to talk about no sugar you know that that's that's the future and I said oh well can I actually incorporate no waste and then they said yeah what's the recipe and I went oh well I'm developing this banana skin cake so that made me get the make sure the cake was good because I had to actually have this family uh, I had to make this banana skin cake with no sugar no banana and she made a traditional banana bread cake, which had three cups of sugar in it. And then her two children had to come home from school for afternoon tea. And it's a documentary. They had no idea what was going on. Do a taste test. And I went, oh, I'm really oh, stuffed. Man. And? Well, the very polite 14-year-old who's kind of fully into the no sugar thing. And it turns out the family didn't know I was coming on, but they'd all kind of been reading the first book, I Quit Sugar. So they knew the concept and everything. And the teenage daughter was just getting into all of that. So she said she really liked it. And the youngest, who was really precocious and, you know, great value, but said it as it was, she said, oh, yeah, it's pretty good, pretty good. (laughs) And then, you know, mums came out with the three cups of sugar and she went, no, I like mums better. And I went, okay. (laughs) It's Um, good. Yeah, it tastes a little bit banana skinny though. They didn't throw it out. They'll throw it up though or spit it out. So um, that was a a television win. So, yes, that cake. um, That's awesome. Yeah. That's pretty incredible to get compared side by side to a three cups of sugar cake, you know, and for them to not go, ooh, yuck, that's terrible. You know, that's There's another bonus, and I couldn't share that with the kids, is that um, banana skin is an incredible form of resistant starch. So it's a prebiotic and... um, the book incorporates sort of that prebiotic concept, which is great for anybody with constipation. Now, that didn't make it to national television, um, but I've got a whole lot of cons- yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> constipation fixes all throughout the book. Again, making constipation sexy. Awesome. I couldn't do that when I started out, but to answer your question, it's the book I always wanted to write, but I had to wait till now and you know, for people to sort of get what I'm on about and then I could introduce some of these yeah, ideas. To kind of build them up to, to yeah. yeah. And I think also I think the environment's change. I think I think more people are wanting to be guided. It's kind of everyone's got a bit of greenwash. It's like, oh, it's so overwhelming and we get barraged with messages. We've got governments that just are not tackling this head on, oh, as we know. I mean, so your government amazing. is an exception, and, but the rest of the world, you know, is really struggling with all of this. And But I think everyday consumers, we're all kind of overwhelmed and we're just wanting to be shown how to make it easy. So I figured if I put big screaming headlines with the word sexy and, you know, save $17,000 a year and, you know, $1, what is it, $1.75 family meals. 348 recipes, that's going to draw people in. Yeah, if I, if I showed other ways to approach the sustainability message, like it just makes sense, it's flow. 
Mm. You know, because I think there's um, there's so much consumer confusion in terms of in, well anything health and wellness related yes. because there's always a professional they've they've always got a background in something and and they always know what they're talking about but they're all saying different things. Well, butter is bad for you. Butter exactly. Is back. Um, That's right. And, and so people are so confused. They're like, is fat good? Is fat bad? Is pale- a grains good? A grains yeah. bad? What's going on? It's really I think difficult. The best thing for people to understand, and you guys would get this. Um, Nutritional science is the most inexact science out there because you can't stick a bunch of kids in a room and force feed them M&Ms and then another bunch of kids give them carrot sticks, right, and see what happens. It's just there's ethical issues. There's so many issues with nutritional science and um, there's not a lot of money behind it. So anyone, let's just say, for instance, Coca-Cola or Nestle, uh, who do have cash, they can go and find a nutritional science to create a study that makes butter good or bad or sugar good or bad. They can essentially prove anything they want to. Yeah, and the media, um, you know, for whatever reason, don't dig that layer deeper to see who's funded the study, um, to see if it's gold standard. So often these studies are complete shams. But that... They make headlines and so that's why we're all confused because the science is all over the shop. Mm. Food and wellness, it's such an emotional issue because so many people are struggling with it, you know. It's like sugar. Like if I if I came out with a book going I quit peanuts or broccoli, nobody would have cared, right? But when you, when, when you come out with something that challenges, I don't know, something that really cuts to the emotional people core. People get defensive. Right, It yeah. does, and it's also it's challenging these um, beliefs that people have had for years and years, and they've grown up on those beliefs because that's, I think, what big corporations have really marketed towards us yeah. as being healthy. So, you know, to, to go against that and tell people that, no, you've actually been wrong for all these years. Yeah. People don't like being told that they've been doing the wrong thing when they think they've been doing the right thing. And I don't know if you find these parents, um, I really feel for them because they're wanting to do the right thing by their kids and then they find out that the breakfast cereal or the muesli bars that they've been giving their kids or the fruit juice, fruit juice is a classic. Um, I think it's the same in New Zealand as it is in Australia. Pretty much all the fruit juice companies are now owned by um, Pepsi or Coca-Cola because they've realised that that's a sort of a beverage market they can latch onto. Oh and then people God. like me point out that fruit juice is just as bad as, as you know, fizzy drinks. So, yeah, it, it's, you know, there's these com- incredible kind of interests that are driving um, the choices that people are making, as you say, Art. But And then parents feel really guilty that they've got it wrong, that they got sucked in. And, you know, I guess people in... in in the industry, people like us, we've got to be aware of that, that you can't make people feel bad about their choices because it's a bit like smokers. They were duped into smoking. They had a government, like around the world, governments earned money from people's addiction to tobacco. And it's the same with sugar. Sugar is so propped up by the food industry. It's a super cheap food, completely unsustainable. They've got oodles of cash and they basically pay governments around the world to keep them in business. And so governments then allow food pyramids that, you know, allow sugar in moderation. Yeah, that's right. I think it's, um, I'd probably group, you know, refined carbohydrates into the same group as those big sugar companies as well with what they do. Yeah. I mean, the f- the thing is, I have, people often say to me, do you eat carbs? And I'm like, yeah, look, I do. And a lot of people ask me, should I quit carbs and sugar, I'm like, do one thing at a time and see where the issue is. The thing is, is when you quit sugar, um, you quit 
80, 90% of processed foods. So it naturally actually negates all those refined carbohydrates really. Mm. So, so, so if someone did want to quit sugar, mm. how do you go about it? <laughs> like, is this, are we, are we reading the pack backs of packets of food? And, it's part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the approach that I took with the eight week program and, um, it took me two years to research it and put it all together and it, see, it, it, it wound up working for a lot of people is a, to treat it as a gentle experiment. So it's not about, um, a diet. It's kind of seen if it works. And generally people get a feel within two weeks, which is great. And I think I said last night uh, that somebody said, oh, how do I know if it's working? Well, in two weeks, your skin changes, you get less wrinkles and pimples, which is fabulous for my business model because people feel um, the vanity kicks in, right? People are going to be all over it. And they're like, I'm going to keep going with this thing, right? Absolutely. Um, Anything that improves your appearance, people are just like, I'm sold. Vanity vanity works and we can can use it responsibly to, to get messages across. It takes eight weeks to reverse an emotional and a physical addiction. And that was science that kind of emerged while I was playing around with all of this. So that's why it's eight weeks. And uh, you've got to replace the sugar with something. So it for me, it was um, essentially in the first instance, replacing it with kind of really good quality fat for satiation, but also to reignite the ghrelin leptin mechanism, which is what becomes deranged from eating fructose. And that derangement means that you've got no capacity to know if you're hungry or full. So the eight-week program was never about Oh, losing weight and, you know, that was the goal. The goal was to re-regulate your appetite hormones. That's it. And then once you've done that and your body is doing what it needs to, you go back to eating like you did as a kid. Remember we used to feel full Mm. and then we were like hungry, you know, and it kind of worked to three meals a day and kids do need snacks in between. Adults do not. So the best analogy I have for it that sort of really kind of saw pennies drop for people is that when you're snacking and you're eating sugary and foods and refined carbohydrates, like putting Kero or Kindling on your fire and it'll burn, but it's going to be a hell of a lot of work to kind of keep topping it up, you know, throughout the day. Whereas when you eat really good quality protein and fat and vegetables, it's like putting a big log on the fire. It'll burn for a nice solid five hours with a nice even energy and then it starts to die off and then it's lunchtime, you know. Um, And I think that kind of makes sense to people. They can see that if you eat a solid meal with all the macronutrients and micronutrients embedded there, um, you don't need to spend your entire day thinking about whether you're allowed allowed to have a muffin. And, you know, sugary coffee at 11 o'clock. Yeah, totally. Mm. And so with the whole um, I Quit Sugar movement, um, was that brought on, because I know that you struggled with anxiety in in the past, was that brought on to to kind of help combat that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So the I Quit Sugar, I first quit sugar in January 2011. So we're, what, coming up for Mm. eight years ago? Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, <laughs> Time flies. I know, it does. I know. Sometimes it feels like longer. Um, and But initially, just prior to that or during that time, I'd been commissioned to write a book about anxiety. And so I got 60,000 words in and they were just terrible words. They were words that were never going to go anywhere. So I threw it out. And during that period, I'd actually sort of escaped to the, the buyer in Hinterland, some of your 
listeners to this podcast might be familiar with that part of the world. It's beautiful. It's full of hippies. And, of course, I went and lived in a, an army shed in the forest. Of course and, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was having a, a mid-30s breakdown and that's what you'll find a lot of us want to do. Mm. Um, so I, I was living up there and I was trying to attend to my health. It was basically because I had no money. Um, I'd not be able to work because I'd got so sick. So the sugar thing was an experiment, one of many experiments, just to see if it would make an impact. And anyone with autoimmune disease, which is the condition I had, will know that they've been told to quit sugar. Mm. Um, It is a huge trigger for inflammation and obviously um, an immune response. And it's just the worst thing you can can be eating is if you've got anything, anything, um, well, any kind of inflammatory disease or autoimmune disease. It makes it so much worse, doesn't it? Oh, Mm. it's, it's, I actually believe it's the original trigger. I think it's the trigger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, True. I think it's the trigger. Um, there's a lot of science now that the Epstein-Barr virus is behind a lot of autoimmune disease, particularly Hashimoto's, which is what I've got. But again, I think what triggers the EBV to reappear is sugar. Mm. And I think that was certainly my case. What, what exactly is Hashimoto's? Because it sounds like Quasimodo. Yes. It sounds like a Japanese brand of soy sauce. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, oh, look, Hashimoto's was some dude in a lab coat that just kind of put his name to it. And really, Hashimoto's, it's thyroid disease. So it's a hypoactive, which means that uh, it's a sluggish thyroid. And pre- look, all my life, I've understood it to be essentially your immune system attacks the thyroid, mistaking it often for the gluten um, molecule. So that's why a lot of um, people with thyroid disease are told not to eat gluten. Now, um, more recent studies are showing that it's actually EBV. Most people with Hashimoto's, in fact, they think all people with Hashimoto's have had glandular fever when they were younger. Um, that's stage one, stage two or three. I think there's many stages. Uh, it attacks the thyroid gland. It goes embeds itself into the thyroid gland. And so your antibodies come out and attack the EBV and as a result cause a lot of damage to the thyroid gland. It stops producing the right hormones. And the thing about um, the thyroid um, hormone is that um, every cell in our body is uh, has a receptor for the thyroid hormone and vitamin D. And so vitamin D and thyroid hormone are absolutely essential to being able to function as a human being. Um, and that's why it's probably so problematic because the symptoms are wild. They can affect absolutely any part of your body, you know, wow. and generally a vulnerability. So for me, you know... Um, when I'm thyroidy, as I call it. Yeah. Um, that's the technical term. Yeah, that's right. Um, or Hashimoto-like. Um, I've got aches in parts of my body where I've had injuries. Um, I'm incredibly inflamed. I mean, it just it goes through my I whole system. feel like you're falling system. apart. I mean, that would be yeah. so difficult because when you first experience that, you have no idea where that's coming from, right? Yeah. I mean, when I first got it, which was in my mid-30s, my hair fell out, my nails fell off, my you lose randomly the outer third of your eyebrows, and then I was rendered infertile. I was told I'd never have children. So my whole – I went through premature menopause. Um, oh, my I couldn't goodness. walk – Really, I could, I sort of would shuffle, but that was nine months. And so, just every organ in your body essentially is affected. Um, And I'd left it so long before I took medication. Um, And I, I had very compromised heart function. So they sort of said, look, if you'd left it much longer, you had about two weeks before heart failure. So I, you know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it was, and your adrenals get completely overworked. So it took many, many years to, to recover. 
and a big part of it was quitting sugar. Now, of course, the anxiety piece was in and around that. So the anxiety is what led me to overwrought my adrenals. And, you know, I mean, it's, I used this word the other night um, and it's a US, a technical US army term, clusterfuck. It was a clusterfuck of stuff like stress and anxiety from a young age, Epstein-Barr virus, glandular, you know, like um, the thyroid. There's a lot going on It's just like the perfect storm going on. Absolutely, right? And so you can – I know people who've got this condition and their heads are swirling. Where the hell do I start? And the wonderful answer to that, and it took me a long time to work it out for myself, is all of them have the same modulating fix, if that makes sense. There's never going to be a complete fix, but all of them have the – and that is lifestyle factors – and sugar being predominantly, like being one of the most predominant ones, quitting sugar affected all of those things. All of the that stuff, all that picture started to to loosen. And wow. and over time, I actually reversed pretty much all the markers and, and most of the damage. And so I even, um, at the ripe old age of 42, um, found out I could have children. So wow. it was pretty incredible. 11th hour and, and unfortunately I suspect too late um, for me. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of reversed all of that stuff. So It's amazing, um, it's amazing that you've yeah, completely turned your whole body around basically. Mm, by I'm healthier now than I was. Um, I'm 44, almost 45. I'm healthier now than I was 10 years ago, without that's, a doubt. That's incredible. Because mm. I wonder if, uh, if quitting sugar or dietary and lifestyle choices is something that GPs would um, give as kind of recommendations for someone I with the same I think we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. And I think the fact that a lot of people know that my story is linked to the thyroid stuff. There's a lot of endocrinologists who are some of the most traditional conservative doctors out there. Um, I think even they have had to sort of listen. Well, you can't deny it, can you, if you've, you know, you're a perfect example of... Well, I'm one person, so that's what makes them all sceptical, right? So oh, it worked for you, but it might not work for everyone else. And that's true. We can never assume it will work for everyone else. But unfortunately, um, in the last couple of years, the science has started to prove this. And I talked about this when I was um, at the talk the other night. Um, the, For instance, um, bipolar patients in a clinic in Switzerland are now being treated with a, a zero-sugar diet as, a, as their treatment plan. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So they've found a link, you know, very recently, really, I think only in the last 12 to 24 months. The high uric acid uh, levels caused by sugar are directly linked to the bipolar sort of picture. Now, these are all theories and we don't know what comes first and we don't know what part of the condition it's affecting. But I think common sense prevails. That's probably what you're referring to, isn't it? Like, Absolutely. I think at the core, and I think the reason why people responded to the the no sugar thing is they went, I kind of know the reason, I, I think I have this line in the first book, I Quit Sugar, is the reason that we feel baseline crappy is sugar. We kind of know. We don't want to admit it out loud. But deep down, you know. We don't want to quit our five scoops of ice cream after dinner habit. We really, really don't. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we kind of know that that's why we've put on five kilos. Mm. Yeah, because your mind is pretty good at justifying any decision that you make. Uh, yeah. You know, but but deep down, 
you know that yeah. it's wrong yeah. and you shouldn't be doing but it, but so, your brain But it's so delicious. Of, I don't want to stop doing yeah, that. Yeah, if I can just yeah, yeah. take a pill instead. Yeah, because yeah, there's that amazing quote that I think people are slowly starting to get on board with, and that's food can either be our biggest poison or our greatest medicine. Yeah. And I really love that because mm. it's it's so true. I think people are slowly people getting more on board yeah, with it, aren't they? they kind of do and then I find myself even being slightly sceptical of, oh, what, so if I eat that, that's going to happen? It's quite remarkable, true story, you know. Like Mm. we find it hard because we eat such complex foods as well. It's quite hard to isolate what it was that you ate that actually or didn't eat that had an impact and made you feel better on Wednesday. And what it was on Thursday you ate. Especially you if you're feel... snacking and eating well, five or six times a day. How are you going to keep track and of sometimes, that? Sometimes these negative effects that could come from eating a certain type of food, they won't be expressed for a, like a week or two. You know, that's sometimes. true. Yeah. And so it's really hard to track down what it's it might an be. Eight, and field. that's why mm. the eight-week experiment that, you know, people would do as a, as a collective when I had the online program or they do as a family, it gives your body a chance to go, ah, you know, and it's quite, it's a radical transformation to actually adjust that ghrelin leptin um, mechanism. So, yeah, you know, and that's the best, that's the only thing, that's the thing that I say to people, it's just find out. Mm. Because if you've got a sneaking suspicion, eight weeks, you can do it, you know. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. your health and it's only with, eight weeks, mm, you know. Yeah, with that, um, you know, trying things out and seeing how you feel, because you have bipolar disorder and do I've you been, know... I've been issued with the diagnosis. Right, yes, you've been over issued the with, a, with a diagnosis. <laughs> do you do you find that some certain foods make you make it worse or? Yeah, it, yeah, yes and no, yes. Um, but I guess it's hard. I mean, at sugar. Yeah. Um, grains. Look, anything that makes my thyroid, my inflammation flare up, also affects everything else down the line. Generally, a little bit later. So, and it's not like it's a complete. I mean. My 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 friend bipolar um, and I we we travel this road and we don't necessarily kind of travel in sync. We don't really know when one will get excited and the other, you know, um, is a bit meh, you know. <laughs> but you're in it together and We're you're just working it, it out. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think the thing is, is I I you know I've been living this way for a while and I have my flare ups and everything. But the big difference is, is that I know what's happening now and I describe it as a kite, you know, I don't want to ever have my kite deflate and land to earth because it's, and this is the premise behind first we make the beast beautiful. My beast is beautiful. It has, it's my superpower. It has, I would not have produced these books. I would not have had a business. I wouldn't have had 20 stuff. I wouldn't have done all these things. I wouldn't have probably healed myself. Perhaps I wouldn't have even got sick, but there's no point thinking about that. I'm always about like, well, Next. What are the good things of it? What yeah. we, you know, what do we need to do to move on? Um, so, uh, you know, all of this stuff, I wouldn't have had that tenacity and that um, freedom of of kind of spirit, you know, in my entity, except for this so-called bipolar disorder. So for me, not eating sugar, um, I have very limited gluten. If I eat gluten sort of over a couple of days, it, it has an impact, a very real, um, too many pulses, um, I've been eating corn chips for three days. I had a 
packet. Wait, wait, what's a pulse? Is that a corn chip? Chickpeas and, you know, oh. lentils and, pul- you know, like pulses. Have you never and- heard the term pulses? No. Oh, okay. No. They're the lentils, chickpeas, yeah, mung beans, all of that kind of thing. Um, Those things can wreak havoc with me and Mm. so I've been eating way too many of them the last few days. I thought you were referring to Pulse, the um, energy alcohol RTD. And I was like, well, I'm sure having a few pulses probably would make you go. Yeah, right, okay. All right. Yeah, that's going to flare it up, absolutely. Yeah. So if I have those, they'll flare up. But I, I have quite a... I don't like to use the word balanced because when it comes to sugar, there's no such thing as balance. Mm. It just goes, you know, like you, I don't know too many people who can eat one scoop of ice cream or, you know. A they're freaks of nature. They're, there's yeah. very, very I've few I've got a friend around. who can have two squares of chocolate. Oh. You know. It's, it's just they're not annoying, a thing, people. is it? It's they're annoying. It's not a thing. Um, so if, if, if I eat 85%, I can reduce it to a quarter of a block, you know. Because it's not that nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. But you kind of, you do get satiated, you know, totally. and there's not the sugar in there that sends you off. It's the sugar that basically keeps you eating more and more of it. Anyway, because I've been living this way and I kind of know how far to push it and then I have to sort of take a step back, you know, after eating all those corn chips, I'll go back home to Australia and I'm just going to eat a pork chop and some zucchini with some olive oil. Like that's just all I'm, that's what I know my body will need. I sort of know how to modulate so that I can fly my kite, but the string doesn't go out too far, you know. And you know when you fly out the kite too far, it starts to thwack around, it gets kind of slack and it gets violent and uncontrollable. That's what I used to be like. So lifestyle diet stuff keeps me grounded. I can kind of keep the string on a tight rein. You know what I mean? Not too tight. I can let it out when I need to, but I can kind of read when it starts to get wobbly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that analogy. I really, really like that. But I also really love um, how you're kind of harnessing this anxiety and bipolar disorder uh, because too often you hear that there's something wrong with you or or it's like your your body is kind of doing something wrong that you need to fix. It's the only model that we've all grown up with. Exactly. But it's not the model that always existed. Um, throughout history, and this is what's sort of sparked my interest in this, um, the great thing about these so-called bipolar tendencies is that once you get an idea in your head, you go down the rabbit mine or the, 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 the rabbit hole, and I can research until, you know, like everybody's fallen by the wayside and I'm still going, I'm still going, and I can stay up for, you know, I can stay up for 24 hours if something takes my interest. That's your superpower. Yeah. And um, it's not good for me to do that. I stop myself now. Um, I, I just go, all right, we can pick up again <laughs> it's tomorrow. It's still going to be there yeah, a day later. Right. Yeah. The Googles are not going to, you know, erase <laughs> that information. Um, but it has meant that I've been able to research quite deeply into it. And one of the things when I was 21 that I found was this kind of notion that um, – you know, the leaders, uh, big leaders, big, beautiful, incredible, history-changing leaders were predominantly the bipolar or OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and uh, spiritual shaman were, were generally OCD um, because they were able to, they're able to uphold incredible standards of safety and hygiene, plus they had an ability to kind of see where everybody was at. So it was an insight. It was this kind of intensity. And I always sort of joke by way of a sort of an analogy. I'm sure it was a bipolar person that went, right, I'm going to go over that hill that you're always, you're all too scared to go over. I'm going to go over there. And they go over and they come back and go, guys, 
there's these people over there that have invented the wheel. We should get onto it. And I can tell you that the person who invented the wheel had OCD. You know, they were like, <laughs> we're going to get these spokes perfect. <laughs> and that's the way I kind of see it. And that's it's always been a necessary part of the human experience. And uh, you might have heard me say this last night, 1.2% of the population around the world. It doesn't matter whether you're in the deepest, darkest part of the Amazon or you're here in Auckland. 1.2% have bipolar and it's about the same for OCD. And it makes me think that there's a percentage of us that have these kind of quirks for a reason and it's to keep us safe, it's to progress us forward. And to get shit done. To get shit done. We'd probably be still drawing stick people on caves <laughs> with an antelope's bone. Yeah. Um, or um, we'd just be talking about it but not actually, you know. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and waiting. Who's, all right, dude, who's going to do it? Who? Yeah, who's going to actually follow through we, with this? Yeah. We, we were, um, Mandy and I were discussing this um, a couple of days ago because we've got um, a couple of uh, business partners that are, have certain sort of mental health issues from time to time. Quirks. They have quirks. Mm-hmm. They've got superpowers. Yeah. And they really are superpowers. Like the incredible things that they can do mm. um, where, you know, people like Maddie and I. We don't have the attention span. We, we, <laughs> we just don't. No, we seriously. <laughs> you um, sleep at night, however. I mean, you know, that's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's Pro, the payoff. Pros and cons, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's just another level of. Of kind of delving deeper, isn't and, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, you know, um, it it is heralded as a great thing to be, you know, busy and full on, and oh, I've got so much on in our culture. However, that actually prevents us from seeing anxiety that spins out of control as something that needs to be helped. You know, people need help with it. You know, so there's this, there's there's all these kinds of um, paradoxes that go on, um, and. You know, like I say, really, anxiety actually only entered the DSM, and I think it's the same here in New Zealand as it is in Australia. The DSM is an American kind of uh, psychiatric bible that uh, d- that categorises all the mental illnesses, and I think we're up the, to the DSM number five or something. I think we're moving on to the six. Um, anxiety only in- entered the DSM as a disorder in 1980. You know, before wow. that, it was there was a different attitude towards it, and I think for probably a long time it wasn't particularly helpful. But you go back not so long ago, Winston Churchill. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he was a nutbag. I shouldn't. I guess I can say this word because I am somebody who fits <laughs> in the category. So. Yeah, okay. Um, I shouldn't use that language, but I'm sure your listeners can forgive me. But you know, he was hard work, yeah. and but same time he was brilliant and I think you know uh, British people remember him with incredible I wouldn't well fondness perhaps but admiration and awe and respect and there was an understanding that his complexity you know went both ways and I think um, that has been that has been left behind in history and it's because of the over medicalization of depression anxiety and and you know bipolar, OCD, the whole lot. It's been over-medicalised and as a result we've shut ourselves down from the nuances of what these conditions are, I believe, actually about. They are inevitable. You know what? No drug has been able to eradicate these diseases. We st- 1.2% of the population still have these conditions. It doesn't matter how many drugs you give them. No, that's right. And I think um, we learned some stuff Last night at this talk, Julia Rutledge was talking about the um, 
you know, the efficacy of some of the medication that's prescribed for these mental illnesses mm. and how over time they're no better off than totally. prescribing placebo. a placebo. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, crazy. so the drugs wow. that, um, you know, I've been on over the years and a lot of your listeners, you know, might be taking, they have a placebo effect. But, of course, they run out. If you've got, as in the placebo effect runs out because... If you, and I say this to people and I said it to myself, if you've got any indication or any feeling in your gut, it's a bit like the sugar thing, maybe the sugar's the issue. It's a bit like that. I sort of say, do you feel that you are disordered? Like, it does it, what's going on? Is it a sickness? And people go, no, no. Because even that word, yeah, disorder, it sounds like, yeah. oh, there's really something wrong mm. with me, yeah. you know? I think the problem is, is that we haven't nurtured people when they've, when it, and we haven't we we actually deny people the skills to modulate and to keep it livable, you know. And I think that that's where the focus needs to go, you know. Um, but yeah, the drugs thing. I mean, the whole premise behind um, mental disorders, which we have had for about twenty, almost thirty years now. And I was part of the first generation. I was one of the first to kind of people slip to go on under Prozac. That label. Like, yeah, I was in Australia. I it was I was within a few weeks of Prozac arriving in Australia. I went. I was put on it, and no one knew what it bloody did. Nobody knew, and the science apparently was that it's a chemical imbalance in the brain, and apparently people like me. The problem was is that we were just born without enough serotonin swimming around in our brains, so that neurons could pass across effectively. Um, and, you know, I bought that and it was kind of a relief because I could say to my parents, you know what, I'm not a pain in the ass. I've just not got enough serotonin. And it was all, you know, really nice. Everybody kind and of I felt comfortable. with this one little Yeah, pill. watch me get better. But what we now know, and really it's actually very, very recent. I don't know if Julia mentioned how recent it is. I think it's only in the last uh, 12 months, two years. We've actually worked out there's no science. There's no there's no data to that theory. It was just postulated and then the drug companies jumped on it and it's been fed to us ever since. And that's the only theory that, you know, we all grew up with. Mm. So when you don't have that, what are we left with? And so that's, I mean, I wrote the book before this all came out or it's actually, you know what, no, sorry, it came out while I was writing the book. So it was actually very convenient, you know, um, but I'd already worked on the, the idea that there might be another way of looking at this for, well, you know, nine, eight years, you know. So, yeah, it does, it, it blows your brain, doesn't it? Here's a quick message from our sponsor, Sabaru. Well, it's no secret that both you and I bloody love Sabaru. We both drive them. Yep, that's no secret. Well, I drive a Sabaru Forester and that one car of the year last year in 2018. It's a medium SUV and you may ask, what does a medium SUV mean? Well, it means you get all the good stuff of an SUV of like feeling, you know, quite cool and high up in your big car, but it's a lot easier to, to drive around the city and it's a lot easier to park, which is a big one for me. I mean, I kind of need all the help I can get in that department. Mm, yes, I'd agree with that. Well, I, okay, I can understand why that one car of the year. Mm. And it's super safe, it's comfortable and it's full of tech. Some of that tech exclusive to Subaru. Well, like what? Well, like the driver recognition system. So, for example, if you get in my car and drive it, which sometimes happens, and you change all the settings, you're putting the chair back, you're turning the mirrors, and then if I get back in the car, it's going to scan me, know who I am, and put all my settings back in place automatically. That is quite cool, tech. I know. It's super epic. And what do you drive? Outback. Thoughts? Subaru Outback. 
Love it. It's the people's car, the car of New Zealand. Why is that? Well, it does everything. You, can, you drive around the city, it's all-wheel drive, you can shoot up the mountain, it's got built-in roof racks, chuck some boards on the roof, head down for a surf, big enough space in the back, you can go on road trips. You can, I've slept in the back, it's that big. Yeah, that is actually impressive because you're quite tall, aren't you? Mm, correct. So go on, go check out one for yourself. Visit Subaru.co.nz to check out the Subaru range and find an SUV to suit your lifestyle. And unlike Auckland's house prices, they're totally affordable. Do you think, because there does seem to be kind of an epidemic of anxiety and depression, do you think that that is, that it's just become a lot more accepted or is it genuinely getting worse? I think it's a combination of things and it's a little bit contentious because pain is pain, right? So I don't take away from anyone's pain and there's all reasons, kinds of reasons for why we experience pain. So I don't want to sort of uh, discuss whether somebody's got legitimate anxiety or or kind of, you know, non-legitimate anxiety. What I do feel is a more interesting discussion is perhaps we're living in such a way that more of us are feeling that we can't cope and we don't have the resilience to deal with stresses. So the flight or fight response is very legitimate. Anxiety is very legitimate. Um, And I would say that anxiety, and there's a lot of data to suggest anxiety uh, has not increased, um, particularly amongst teenagers. And I know a lot of parents are really concerned that it is on the increase. What has shifted is an inability to sit in discomfort. So we find discomfort very, very difficult, predominantly because we're not used to sitting in boredom, pain, inconvenience, frustration, because there's instant answers for everything out there. And, you know, I think that parents for all kinds of understandable reasons have really kind of made it quite, how can I say, they've made it easy for their kids in many ways to not have to go and confront stuff, you know. So I would say that I think we have a resilience crisis as opposed to an anxiety crisis. Yeah, that makes Does sense. that cause pain? Yes. But let's make sure that when we talk about it, we're talking about the right thing and addressing the right thing. So that's my yeah. answer to it. Yeah. I think that technology, yes, it's a problem, um, but it feeds into that notion of the answer always being out there. We grasp outwards and it is taking us in the wrong direction for kind of personal development. You talked about before with anxiety. So for, for people who might be listening that do experience anxiety from time to time, what are some, what are some ways that people can yeah. help to try and combat that well, or work um, with it? There's sort of two approaches. First is to kind of have some practices in your life so that the, the likelihood of having an anxiety spiral is lessened. So I um, have a morning routine and I just do it. It's kind of like non-negotiable. So I exercise in the morning and that works for me, but I don't, you know, go, oh, I'll exercise three days a week because then it's going to, I'm going to go, all right, so which three days is it? You know, it gets to Friday. It's like, shit, I've got Friday, Saturday, Sunday left, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I just exercise every day. And if it's 15 minutes, so be it, right? Just do something. So I do that. I meditate, meditate. Meditating just makes a huge difference. It's tedious. It's boring. Every iota of my being doesn't want to do it. I do it because it works. It really does work. So um, I can't sh- I can't sugarcoat it. Just do it. 
Um, Do you find with um, meditation, because mm. we've just kind of started getting into it in the Probably past. in the last year, year we've been on so. a meditative journey. And we've experienced huge positive changes in our life. Mm. But what I find a little bit odd is that I kind of have to have an app to help me meditate. Yep. And I find it really difficult to do it just by myself. And now I'm thinking, does that kind of defeat the purpose? No. If I'm using what, what technology. App, what app do you use? Um, Insight Timer. Yeah, oh, yeah, nice. that's fine. Yeah, My friend it just it. kind of feels really? like, oh, really? <laughs> Plug to Insight yeah, Timer. Yeah. That's, it's I an awesome one. I love Insight Timer. But yeah, it kind of makes me think I'm trying to sort of get in, Outs- in, into you're myself. But I'm, oh, you no, know. No, 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 meditation isn't the thing. Meditation is the thing that points to the thing. So meditation is just a tool. Who cares how you go about it? Mm. Don't yeah. feel bad about that. If it is the thing that brings you in closer... Gosh, do whatever it takes. Yeah, true. Yeah. True. No, right. I'm, I'm kicking you're on, on the, the right track. Time. And it's not just because I know somebody who owns it. How, how, <laughs> how did you get into meditation? Do you use an app? No, I did the Vedic style and it so, was somebody on the, well, it was three people in a week told me I was in a really, really bad way. Like I was, I was suicidal and three people ran into me and they said, you've got to go and meet this meditation teacher, Tim. And I was like, who is this bloody Tim guy? Three different people yeah, yeah, in a week. A and I've got a three strikes and you've got to act. Yeah, absolutely. And Brene Brown works to exactly the same thing. Um, so I, um, yeah, I looked up this Tim guy. I said, I don't want to do this, but, you know, this is what's happened. So I'm coming to see you. And I didn't quite say it like that. I said, can I please come and see you? <laughs> um, and we met and I was really resistant to it in part because it was expensive and I had no cash, um, but I was desperate. So, yeah, <laughs> I was, I, 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 I would, I'd recommend to anyone to do it before you get desperate. And with the, with the Vedic style, that's when you have a mantra? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I did, there's, it might even be Tim's app called One Giant Mind. Is no. that his? No. No. Oh. Well, that's, that's an app that I've used. Yeah. It's like it uses a similar technique, which yeah. is, it's been really cool. Yeah, it's a tradition that's, you know, sort of, I think, yeah, 5,000 years old and it's been yeah. handed down from teacher to teacher. And so Ayurvedic medicine, um, yoga, all yoga and all meditation stems from this original style. And so Buddhism stemmed from it about 2,000 years later. So the Chinese went to India and um, wow. picked it up and I didn't took realize it back. That. Hmm. Yeah, so um, it works for me, but I think it, it really doesn't matter. So, yeah, back to you. Some of the techniques, meditation really works, walking, 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 actually the science around walking and how it can modulate anxiety is quite profound, Um, a lot of studies. And um, essentially, I won't go into it deeply now, but um, it shuts off the anxious part of your brain. So it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be fancy, just tie on your shoes, get out of the house. You've got kids screaming, whatever, I don't know, put them in a pram, um, walk for 20 minutes, it works. So that's sort of a really good one. Um, other really small things, all of the th- techniques I share in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, they're things you can do right now, as in you can just get up off the couch and do it. Like I don't like the idea of having to drive a car to such and such and then you have to do this and that. Oh, yeah, like totally. You need to do them now. Um, meditation I don't recommend for when you're in an absolute panic attack or an anxiety spiral. It's too much. Because um, so is that sort of because you can't – Focus and, and then you get anxious you'll because you can't yourself. do it. Yeah, yeah. that's mm. exactly it. So walking is great for that. And I used to, when I was younger, I had a sign on the back of my door going, just walk. Um, I 
sometimes I'll go and write out my anxiety. So I'll go, I'll just get a piece of paper and a pen. And I've done it in a bar where I write about this in the book. I won't explain what led up to it because it might ruin the story. But I just, I, I was in a really bad way. And I went down from the hotel room and I went and sat at the really cliched piano bar. And this lovely lady gave me a glass of red wine. I've just got the bar napkin and I and I borrowed a pen and I just wrote out what was going on and that calmed me down because it slows your thoughts down to a pace that's of discerning thought. Um, writing and walking are at the same pace as discerning thought. So that's why those two things work. So, yeah, those uh, the book is full of techniques that are both instant but also more of a modulating long-term thing just to kind of so that you can be that kite flyer with the sturdy base you know yeah yeah that's really interesting about the meditation how you don't really recommend it when you're in that state because I guess the really good thing about meditation is that you practice it when you feel good so you're kind of armed when you totally right it's building up your strength right so that when you do have these anxiety panic attacks um they're not going to be as bad yeah that's essentially what it's about one one thing that um helps me when i'm in a state when i'm just feeling really stressed and overwhelmed is to just jump in a cold shower yeah or or jump in the sea if it's look the ocean Mm. is a great one not everybody has access to it but everyone has access to a cold shower yeah you know um there's a great vedic term or phrase and it's i don't know what it is in sanskrit but it's do what you're not doing Mm. which is kind of similar to it. Remember George Costanza? Remember his theory where he's like, everything I've done in life has landed me in trouble, so I'm just going to do the opposite. Do you remember that episode? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So and good. so he just picked up girls everywhere because he stopped just he, he stopped being him. He started being the absolute opposite. And yeah. um, But it is that, I was a bit sceptical about it, but sometimes that jolt to the system can actually get you seeing life with fresh eyes. It's a, the, the term fresh eyes is a very Vedic term and Buddhist term as well. Um, fresh eyes can often just be enough of a perspective shift to, sh- to jerk you out of it, you right. know? Yeah. Yeah, I find it kind of just, it shocks me and it... Resets. It resets because mm. I can't really focus on anything other than right here and right now. Yeah, you know, a lot of the techniques are often about getting you... Um, into that present mode. Because if you're in, in a cold shower, you are not thinking about anything else. Oh, no. Apart from that freezing cold no. shower. Cleaning yourself as quick as possible and then... Yeah. Getting out of there. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a good, I'd, I'd say that's a good technique. I'm not going to do it. I've got other ones. I hate cold water. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. Um, but I also just wanted to touch on Ayurvedics. Is yeah. that how you say it? Ayurveda. Ayurveda. Ayurveda, right, yeah. because I've I've heard it um, quite a lot over the last couple of months yeah. or so and I've seen that, that there's an Ayurveda pesto in here. All my cookbooks have Ayurvedic principles throughout, awesome. so you don't even need to know about them. You can just trust that I incorporate them into all my recipes. And they're a good thing. Yeah. So, so can yeah, you talk a little bit about what they well, are? Well, Ayurveda is the tradition and it's um, the, Vedic, the Vedas are a bunch of um, – sort of scriptures, I suppose, that were handed down 5,000 years and they're kind of modes for living and they incorporate diet, uh, you know, food, um, yoga and meditation. There's the, th- the three sort of pillars. Yeah. And if you think about it, wellness works to that today. Absolutely. So much of contemporary wellness is, is Ayurvedic just by um, sort of almost default or, or through the lineage, I suppose. So what we're discovering in wellness has been discovered 
Yeah. Thousands of years ago already. And it's like this new thing that yeah. everyone's jumping onto. I know. Yeah, really. It's like 5,000 The poor Indians old. are over there lo- you know, rolling <laughs> oh, their eyes. Oh, just rolling their eyes. They're just yeah. like, are you serious? They'll be permanently in the back of their head. Just yeah. Like, oh, so, yeah. look, I find it really effective. The, the eating principles, they're, they're complex and they're not. Um, they're complex to us because we find them hard to incorporate. But one thing, there's three what are called doshas. They're types. Um, vata, pitta and kapha. And we've all got elements of it, but we tend to have... Uh, a dominant one, you know, and the others might be a bit uh, less so. Um, however, we live in a culture that's particularly vata, and vata is the element that controls all three, if that makes sense. And vata is the wind element. Um, it tends to be very fast-paced, frenetic. I'm quite, I'm vata pitta, um, and I sort of almost personify vata. I look vata, I talk fast. Vatas are generally tall, long-limbed, uh, dry hair, um, always cold, and the um, we live in a vata culture. So even if you're kapha or pitta, you can benefit from vata um, f- foods that pacify vata. So my books tend to be vata pitta, uh, pacifying. So the kinds of stuff that you might want to look out for, we often, when things get frenetic and our minds are going too fast and we've run for the bus and we've been toggling on our phone, we've got to take the kids to soccer practice and, you know, that vibe. Um, try to get out of the breeze. Um, try to eat foods that are grounding and heavy, so stews, um, kumara, um, warm. When I say sweet foods, I mean things like kumara, coconut. Coconut can be quite cooling. That's probably not ideal, but um, certain fruits, that kind of thing. So I incorporate fruit for sweetness in a lot of my savoury dishes for that reason. Oils, you need to get oiled you know, oh, I love and this. yeah, it so great. it's very paleo actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and the two complement or can complement. So yeah, there's principles like that. Um, you don't eat too many cold salads, especially when it's just do not touch salads. Well, in that's winter. right up Maddie's alley because you oh, hate salad, don't cold you? Cold salads oh, are the worst. I well, I just don't, I don't really like cold food. It's well, a bit of a weird thing. But. It's not weird. It's very. It, it means you actually understand your vata temperament, mm. and you've got a bit of a vata vibe going on. Yeah. And so cool. you need to eat grounding, warming, like stews, casseroles, why curries. Why I love curry. Why I love curry. Yeah. You're speaking my language. Yeah. I feel like you've, you've discovered this without <laughs> even realising. So, you know, turmeric, how it's like particularly fashionable, mm. um, that's a very um, Ayurvedic um, herb and, or oh. spice, yeah, So or root. So, yeah, it's, it's that kind of stuff and not eating, yeah, those cold, crunchy foods. They can send butter out of control. Right. So. Oh. Don't eat a raw carrot. Yeah. <laughs> you hate raw carrots, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Give me a warm carrot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Roasted, preferably. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. So what would be um, some tips like for living more sustainably, um, some things mm. that you'd, you'd like kind of, you want to share think, with people yeah, to try and pe- help them? People, I guess, get a little bit overwhelmed, Where do you start? don't they? Yeah. And, and just think, oh, it's too just hard. Like, I'm, I'm just going to leave it to other people. Look, I, I don't, I can't sort of give a step by step. The book kind of does that. Mm. Um, but I'll give a few random bits that might mm. ignite people's thinking. So a lot of people say, well, what do you do about a bin liner? Right, and this is quite an easy one because we are inundated with plastic bags from all kinds of things. Whether it's the frozen peas, you know, the bag that our frozen peas came in, or it might be you posted something 
often I get things posted in Ziploc bags. It drives me mad. But oh, it is I the keep, most annoying thing. I keep all my Ziplocs. So I don't go and buy Ziplocs for food purposes. I keep them from various vitamins I get sent or whatever, even though I ask them not to send it in plastic. Um, but I keep all of those and they're for freezing foods, you know, and, and that, you know, storing things and taking my lunch and whatever. Um, so my, my first tip is with plastic. If you are receiving plastic in whatever form, keep it and then use it where you would use plastic. That's such a great um, tip. So yeah. people throw out their plastic bags and then buy plastic bags. Like, mm. that's insanity. So people say, what do you use for a bin liner? Well, I use, I don't know, the express post bag that somebody has sent to me. And quite often I don't use a bin liner because in my day we grew up with no bin liners like we coped. You put it in the bin and you rinsed your bin out. And then you just wash it. Also, when you're living this way, you'll find that your rubbish will be cut in in a quarter, basically. So you'll have a lot less rubbish because you're not wasting stuff. You're not cutting off. Like So yeah. there's other things. you just got to think. If you use your strawberries for smoothies and you add kale and spinach, why are you cutting off the husks or the, sort of, you know, the little green tops? Why? Mm. Just chuck the whole you're putting thing other in. greens in there anyway. Because right. I've seen someone do it on TV. I- yeah. yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, because yeah. as t- soon as you become sort of mindful of it, then you yeah. you realise how much wasted you that's have. Right. It's like broccoli. I use the stem. Stems why the best do bit. I, Why do people not use the stems? We've only just using, started doing using this. Using the to be stems fair. for for broccoli rice. That's our love. Yeah, them. but you, I mean, you don't even have to wait for that because people forget and they don't get around to broccoli rice dinner or whatever. So just use it straight away. Anything that you can't use straight away. So you've got celery seems to be a real sticking point for people. They cut off the base and they cut off the top half. And I'm like, why? Like I don't buy parsley. I use celery leaves. If I, however, can't get through a whole bunch before it starts to go limp, I just have cut it up into bits and I put it into a container in the freezer. And so begins my stock container. So I'll chuck in a carrot that's starting to go a little bit soft and that'll go in there. And then when I go, when I get some chicken bones or whatever, I chuck it all into a big saucepan with a bay leaf, a bit of white vinegar and some peppercorns and it just boils away. I've always got stock boiling. Um, I don't peel anything, not uh, partly nutrients are in the skin. You'll be surprised how many different types of pumpkin don't require peeling. You can eat the skin. Mm. Um, and I choose the varieties where you don't need to peel. I don't really peel anything. Um, I eat the whole food. What, about, tr- what about an orange? Uh, uh, look, I have to I have to say I eat orange peel, but I've done that all my life before I had any other reason to really? do it. Yeah. Yeah, because it just makes so much sense, it. doesn't it? And it's only because we're not kind of orange been, peel. Yeah, but that's maybe I wouldn't do that. Yeah, to be honest, it doesn't make sense. No, <laughs> but I tell you what, I but everything else does. Yeah, what I but do I'm, with that though is orange or lemon peels. If I'm stuck, if I if I've got my oven on for at a low temperature and I'm doing some low roasting or you know like under one eighty. I will throw in some skins, all grated up, and it becomes – and I turn it into an orange or a lemon salt. Um, but also yeah. if I'm making a smoothie, and I make sort of quite bitter smoothies with watercress and, and so on in it, um, I, I, I always use the whole lime, the whole lemon. So I put the pith in. The, pith, uh, the, the skin of lemon and lime has actually incredible anti-carcinogenic properties. So um, it's actually a really good – really good tip but if I'm using a squeeze of lemon in, in a stew I chuck the whole I squeeze and then chuck the whole lot in it softens and the essence from the oil permeates as well so I don't use a whole lemon I use a half a lemon but I use all of it 
if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So you start to use less flavorings, less food because you're using all of the food. You're maxing flavors. Um, yeah. So there's just little things like that before you throw it out. Go ah. Oh. Just be a little bit mindful of it. One of my favorite tips because people just seem to resonate with it, and it seems to be a great starting point. You know how when you buy kale or asparagus, it comes with elastic bands. Yeah. You know what do you do with all these elastic bands? People keep them, thinking that they heroically use them. There's only so many things you can tie up, right? <laughs> yeah. Your rubber band ball is only going to get so big. That's right. So what I do is um, instead of having a keep cup, I use a glass jar that, you know, from whatever it is, and I put a whole beautiful – and it's a good activity to give to your kids – Put on, you know, 15 or so rubber bands, all different colours, lay it up, and that becomes your sort of silicon grip, you know, that the heat grip. That's and then you've great. got this instant keep cup. So I people go, oh, what do you, you know, what brand of non-disposable takeaway coffee cup do you use? And I say, I don't. First of all, I sit and have my coffee. Mm. Um, and uh, or I if I have to use one, I've got these glass jars. And whenever, you know, when you've got people coming around like I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but, you know, camera crew or somebody's, yeah, they're doing a project at your house and everyone goes off and gets takeaway coffee. I'm like, wait. Yeah. <laughs> I will just put some elastic bags on a some jar. jars for you? <laughs> so, and people love those things. Like, yeah. you know, and it's Because it's creative point. and simple, but it, it just makes so much sense. It's, it's deeply, deeply satisfying. You yeah. Know, yeah, you know what else? Even just like if you live near a cafe and you're walking down to get a coffee, you can just take a cup from your house. There is that very simple solution. Yeah. I know. I mean, people say to me, oh, so what do you do about the metal straws? And do you carry around one of those kind of brushes, <laughs> a brush and a straw? <laughs> and I look at them and I go, no, I've got a fully functioning mouth. And if I find myself ever, I don't buy beverages because they, uh, I don't, I, I buy coffee and red wine, but anything else I really try to limit because of the incredible amount of plastic or, or packaging waste that's required to to house large amounts of, of liquid. Anyway, but I um, if I do find myself in that situation, I ask for no straw and I just use my mouth because I <laughs> yeah, am I just a, drink it. I'm a grown up. <laughs> <laughs> and when I answer people go, oh yeah. Oh, oh, yes, makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can see why you I do, that. do that. <laughs> I mean then you start to question why did we introduce straws? Yeah. What's the point in a straw? I know. Look, I just don't know. Mm. We have created, like I say, a clusterfuck. Mm. Like we've just mucked everything up and it's like I think with Simplicious Flow, it's like I just layer up a whole heap of stuff just to go, oh, maybe you could do this. Oh, And what you can do with this is this and turn to page such and such and you can use up. So when I use make almond milk and coconut milk, I use the leftover pulp to then make some biscuits but you don't even have to dry it. So a lot of the time you might – use coconut flour or almond flour to make some bliss balls and then you have to add all this coconut oil or liquid make coconut milk just just use moist just use moist um meal left over it makes so much sense because i um that's what I really like about this book is that you don't have to spend like $200 on ingredients it's for this quite the one opposite. meal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I cut out all expensive ingredients. And in fact, the ingredient, the number of ingredients that I use throughout the book, I've limited it, limited it, limited it so that even if you buy um, a jar of garam masala, Mm-hmm. I guarantee you can use the whole lot through this book. And I actually actually make that you don't buy any other herbs and spices. I keep it down to I think three or four different herbs and spices. So good. So that if people wanting literally to keep it simple and they don't have a big kitchen 
and they don't like the idea of feeding their cumin and their oregano to the weaves. <laughs> it's every it's time. Of, yes. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Just everyone's got it. Everyone's got it at the back of the buckwheat yeah. flour. Everyone's got buckwheat flour going off at the back. Yeah. Of the I feel like I've got about. Six different flowers in there. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, we do. I, yeah, I, I'm, I really don't want you to look in our cupboard because um, <laughs> you'll, you'll judge us on the... <laughs> no, no, no. You're wonderful people, so I'd let you get away with it. But yes, all throughout the book, the recipes go, whatever you've got, flour. Whatever you've got, leafy greens. Whatever you've got, herbs. And so it's, the idea is the recipes will work. You, you can't stuff them up. Like, they'll work with whatever you've got. It really is a game changer because I've, I've yeah, never seen anything like it. It's it's like it's a pioneering book, you know. Like thank you, it's, it's awesome. Really that was really incredible. That was, as I say at the top, this is not a normal cookbook. No, mm. no, I had totally to put that up there as a warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, it just it kind of just blows my mind how intricate and how much work has gone into that book. Yeah, it's amazing. yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for appreciating it. <laughs> oh, of course. We um, so we've probably got time for one final question. Yep. Uh, which is, if you could choose three foods. You're only allowed three foods for the rest of your Deserted life. Deserted island scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you choose? Zucchini. Do you call it courgette here? Uh, both. Courgette. Do we do both? It's mainly courgette. I call yeah. it zucchini because I think of zoodles. I don't call them yeah. courgettes. But you were born in Sydney, right? No, you were born in Sydney. No, but you grew Guys, up in you really Sydney. Didn't you? Know each other. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, wait. Are, are we getting married? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up. I, I, I live in Sydney. I think Kiwis are very flexible with all it, you, you know, you're smart people, you, you you know what I'm talking about. So zucchini. Okay, zucchini. Right. Yeah. yeah, got it. Uh, zucchini, um, I'm a big fan of pork. Yeah. I find it just versatile. Works. Yeah, and also they've shown that it actually is particularly good for, I find it for autoimmune. People dis- Some people disagree, but some of the longest living cultures in the world, the one meat they have in common is pork. I'm not sure what that's Ooh, about, but wow. there you go. I'm um, stoked you said that. Can I can yeah. I throw in red wine? Absolutely. Yeah, of course a, you can. That's a food, isn't it? Yep. Mm-hmm. I treat it as a food. So a glass of red wine works very well for my inflammation. And I don't know why. Well, I do know why. It's T-Fighter cell 2 or 1. I'm, I'm dominant in that. And there's certain compounds that really support that and can modulate it. Fortunately, uh, chocolate and coffee are also in that category. Most people are the opposite to whatever I am and green tea, olive leaf extract, echinacea and so on responds for them. I'm so glad I'm in the camp. I mean, that's the best camp. Do you you reckon that's solely uh, um, because of the, you know, the nutrients and what the the compounds of it? Do Do you think it's solely because of what's in it or because of maybe the the emotional, mental impact that it has on... I think it's a combination. Yeah. Yeah, and it always is with food, Mm. you know. It's not just the scientific breakdown of the compounds. Yeah. Food should be enjoyed, you know. So, yeah, pork, zucchini, glass of red wine. And you know what? It's exactly what I'm going to be eating when I get home tomorrow night after sort of a week and a half of publicity tour where I'm my guts are in all kinds of strife I'm oh, exhausted and it's kind of so my recalibrating meal nice. yeah. Things. yeah yeah so I'd be happy on that deserted island <laughs> sounds great sounds like a great time well thank you so much for for coming to see us we really appreciate your time thank you Matilda thank Hanging you Art. it's now. been lovely to Living meet room. you I'm really glad nice to meet you I'm too. glad it's happened and if, uh, if anyone wants to track you down follow you on social media get hold of you how can they do that oh god um, sarahwilson.com yeah. is my blog and then it's um, if you just type in Sarah Wilson on Instagram, it'll probably pop up. Yep. It's underscore Sarah Wilson underscore. Nice. Awesome. Beautiful. Cool. Thank you. 
And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to another episode of Well and Good with Art and Matilda, brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast network behind the creation of this fantastic show. And you'll find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on their website, rawcollective.co. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends to give us a listen. And if you didn't enjoy this podcast, then keep your mouth shut. No one wants to hear from you. (laughs) And lastly, if you could please remember to subscribe to and rate this show. This ensures that other listeners can find the show too. 